Hello and welcome to the podcast in the words of Basit. Today I'm joined by a professor of economics, uh, Mr. Professor Todd Noop. He's a professor of economics uh, and chair of economics at Cornell College. Welcome to the show, Professor Todd. Uh, yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so as we know, in our economic climate of today, uh, one of the questions arises as we see uh, people around us is income and wealth inequality. And uh, one of the things we have seen uh, throughout this century and that uh, income and wealth inequality is increasing day by day and people, uh, the poor, people who are poor are getting poorer. So one of the questions come arises in a uh, way that people say that capitalism has, although capitalism uh, has resulted in equality, but uh, if we look at the 18th and 19th century, it was, situation was far worse. Uh, we are way better off in 21st century. So what are your thoughts? Uh, are we getting better in terms of income and wealth inequality or it's getting worse? Well, it really depends upon your perspective. So in terms of global inequality, this is actually the best that it's ever been, right? If we talk about being the median person on the globe today, um, it has never been better to be the median person on the globe than it is right today. So when we talk about inequality between countries, right? Um, what we've actually seen here, particularly over the last 40 years is that amongst some of the poorest countries, we've had some of the most growth. And amongst richer countries, we've had slower growth. And so this has led to a dramatic increase in the number or a, a dramatic reduction in the number of people who are living in extreme poverty and a dramatic increase in, in median global income. So, you know, if, if our unit of analysis is everybody across the globe, then we're actually seeing more equality over the last 40 years. But if our unit of analysis is within countries, right, within the United States, within Pakistan, within India, within countries, we're actually seeing more inequality, right? And that's not always because there are more people that are living in poverty. In fact, that's not the case in these countries. The, pro the, the issue that's driving inequality is what's happening at the very top, particularly for those top 10%, that of those top 10%, the top 1%, of those top 1%, the point, top 0.01%, the people at the very top of the distribution are gaining a huge share of new income. And so while it's not the case that the people at the bottom are seeing their standards of living fall relative to where they are positioned relative to the, to the richest, they're looking relatively poor and poor. And so that's, I think, really the question about inequality, right? Is this, is it, it is not the fact that people are living on less income. It's that they feel in many ways like they're living on less income because they see their living standards falling relative to, do, to, to those at the very top. So uh, if in terms of uh, inequality, we are better off, uh, the condition, living conditions are far better and uh, relative inequality has increased. Uh, that's right. Yeah, so within countries, within right? Within countries. Once again, if you, if you look across the globe, right, by many measures of inequality, um, 
we've seen many people that have been risen out of extreme poverty, particularly if we look in China and India. And so these are people that are kind of moving towards the global middle class, right? And by most measures of global inequality, we've actually seen those measures shrink a little bit. But you know, most people don't think about inequality globally, right? As, as an American living in America, I think most poor Americans don't kind of judge their relative standard of living relative to somebody that's living in India or Pakistan. They, they judge it relative to the people that they see around them. And within a country like the US, we're seeing more inequality, right? We're seeing more, a bigger difference between those that are living at the bottom 10% and those at the top 10%. And we're seeing this in many other countries too. So, you know, I, I, I think this idea of, of inequality is a complicated one because it, it does get back to these complicated issues of fair, fairness, but it also gets back to these complicated issues of, well, in, in unequal relative to who, right? Who? Somebody, are my neighbor or unequal relative to the globe? Yeah, and inequality has been a vivid reminder in this pandemic. We have seen a lot of uh, people on lower wages lose their jobs and while the richest uh, top billionaires got even more richer. Yes, and this is actually, um, I think to economists, a very, very interesting phenomenon. Um, because if you, if you look back at the history of pandemics, and there you know, has been a long history in human history of pandemics, strangely enough, pandemics have actually served to be great equalizers. That typically when we think about pandemics, they've actually helped the poor catch up a little bit with the rich and have in many ways undermined power and privilege in ways that have, have you know, um, basically uh, engaged and, and, and activated the um, segments of society that were traditionally underprivileged. So, you know, a case study that economists, most economists are well familiar with, with was the Black Plague in Europe. And one of the things that happened during the Black Plague was First, it significantly reduced the power of the elites in the monarchy, but it also actually relatively increased the power of the poor because those who actually were able to survive the Black Plague saw their wages rise significantly and gave, gave those workers increased political power that set the stage for many institutional changes that occurred throughout Europe that through a long historical process um, eventually led to the Industrial Revolution taking place. So, you know, traditionally we have seen pandemics in many ways as great equalizers, um, undoubtedly destroying a lot of wealth, but traditionally hurting those who have wealth, which is the, the upper class. And, 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 and once again, on a relative basis, helping to bring up those that are down below. You know, I don't think we're gonna find that during this, this recession and in, in this COVID um, pandemic. Uh, so and I think a lot of it has to do with, with I'm, I'm sorry, Priscilla, but I was going to say, I think a lot of it has to do with, with technology, that um, the changes in the basic structure of our economy and our IT economy have really allowed the privileged 
um, much greater tools to deal with the pandemic than those who are, you know, are not as privileged and tend to work in more labor-intensive jobs. And so I'm, I'm happy to say more about that in a couple of minutes if you'd like me to. Sure, I was just going to ask you the same question. Why has been why it's been a positive case that the richer have got even richer in this pandemic? As your answer is that technology has played a crucial part in. Yeah, so you know, I undoubtedly one of the things that have has been driving inequality before the pandemic was the the nature of technology and the nature of technological change putting a bigger and bigger premium on people who have an education and who have the skills that can work with our new information and tech, um, communication technologies. So for the people that have these skills that have higher education, these new technologies have put a premium on their work and has really increased their wages relative to lower skilled workers, workers who are working in more labor intensive jobs. So this was happening before the pandemic. Once the pandemic uh, you know, broke out, what many high educated, high technology workers were able to do is do what we're doing right here, which is the talk on Zoom, to communicate with people via Zoom, to do their work at home, to really move their work to a place where they could be protected physically from, from the virus. And so this really allowed them the opportunity to continue to work, um, to continue to be productive, to not lose their jobs. But you know, for most people working in more labor-intensive industries, there is no alternative than to actually showing up to work. And that put them in danger, both from a health perspective, but it also put them in a, in a danger of losing their job because you know, if, if there's no customers <laughs> that are shopping at places where people are actually showing up to work, then you know those were amongst the first jobs that were lost. So you know people that were in the kind of personal service industry, whether it's in restaurants, whether it's working, you know, and and a number of personal service industries, they were amongst the first to lose their jobs, and there just simply wasn't an alternative for them. Um, you know, Zoom is just simply not a good way to to cook food for people, and um, and so you know, I think this. Unfortunately, COVID has really only magnified the inequality effect of these changes in technology and the increased premium on education that's occurred here over the last 30 to 40 years. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, great analysis on that point. As I was going to say that COVID has really showed us the reality of uh, today's inequality. Very much. Very much. And, you know, I think related to this, one of the things that we know, even before the, the pandemic, is that in countries that have more inequality, they actually have worse public health outcomes. And so, you know, I think the existing inequality that existed before the crisis really left vulnerable many countries' public health systems. And once the crisis occurred, that not only increased inequality, but it further worsened public health. And so inequality not only set the stage for making it difficult for us to combat this, this crisis, but once the crisis occurred, it made the inequality worse, which then further exacerbated our difficulties in combating this crisis. And so there, there has definitely been a vicious circle between 
our public health outcomes and inequality. And um, you see that in many countries. And, and I suspect that what we're gonna find at the end of this crisis is that the countries that had the worst inequality before the crisis are gonna have had the worst public health, comes, health, public health outcomes after the crisis. Exactly. Uh, when we talk about in terms of uh, in the modern era in the uh, past 50 to 60 years, if we mark where inequality has risen, at what point a lot of uh, economists point to the deregulations in, uh, in uh, early uh, 80s by Reagan and uh, Margaret Thatcher that the, the free market has led to the more uh, inequality. So do you think that the uh, 1980s uh, financial deregulation has uh, led to more inequality? And why did financial regulations uh, in 1980s occur? So, I, you know, I think one of the problems that economists have had in trying to, you know, say what is driving this inequality is that there's actually a number of things that have been driving inequality. It's not just one thing there are multiple factors that have been driving increased inequality within countries like the United States. And so it has been very difficult for economists to separate out these different factors. In many ways, I think what we see is that we really see kind of, once again, a vicious cycle in which many of these factors operate and magnify each other. So, you know, I was talking a minute ago about the in you know, changes in technology that have, that have um, put an increased premium on educational outcomes. And so those that have an education have gotten increased wages. Those that have, are in more labor intensive in industries that are not as education intensive have seen their wages stagnate. That effect has been in many ways magnified by the deregulation that's taken place um, in many areas of the U.S. economy and the U.S. financial system. So people that have an education have also been the people that have been most able to take advantage of some of the good things about financial deregulation and, and, and have been able to take most advantage of the positive outcomes from markets that have come about from financial deregulation. Well, those people that are in more labor-intensive jobs, less education-intensive jobs, have been the least well-positioned to take advantage of booming stock markets and booming financial markets and, and booming industries that have, where these booms have been triggered by financial deregulation. So that's just one example of many in which there's, there's multiple factors here, but they're, they're both kind of, they're kind of magnifying each other, right? They're, they're really kind of integrated. And so, you know, it, it is really hard to say that, that this growing inequality since the 1980s is caused by one thing we'll say that there's a lot of factors that have been driving it. Okay, and the financial crisis of 2008 was a highlight of the flaws in the system. Has anything changed after that of financial crisis of 2008? Were there strict regulations so it doesn't happen again? And were there any actions like banks got bailout, Wall Street received billions of monies of taxpayers, but is, has anything changed after that? I think quite a bit changed. Um, and I think one of the ways that we know, or, or at least one of the clues that we have that things have changed for the better is that we have not seen the kind of 
financial volatility associated with the COVID recession of 2020 as we did during the global financial crisis of 2008. So, you know, I remember a year ago, um, you know, having these conversations about whether the US financial system can withstand a collapse in GDP of 10%, whether defaults among the public could lead to another banking crisis again, or a stock market crash, or a bond market crash. And you know, these were legitimate fears. These were legitimate fears. But I think what we've seen is, you know, at least for the last year, the US financial system and most other financial systems across the globe have done a pretty good job. They, they've actually, you know, stayed relatively steady. Um, and, and I think part of this was that, you know, some of the re-regulation that took place after the global financial crisis in the United States, this was the Dodd-Frank Act of, of financial re-regulation, did make a lot of changes that, that basically put banks on much firmer footing than they were um, before the crisis. So for instance, US banks now have to hold a lot more capital than they did in 2008. And that has really given banks a much bigger cushion for which to withstand losses that they've incurred. So yes, I do think that the US financial system and many other financial systems did learn some things from 2008 and were in a better position to, to withstand um, this, this COVID recession. But I'll think, I'd say the other, um, there was more learning than just that. You know, I think in the US and in other countries, the government response to the pandemic to immediately jump in and look for ways to help support people. In other words, to, to prevent those defaults and bankruptcies occurring before they occurred. That helped the US financial system too. And so these, these big stimulus packages that have been enacted in Europe and the United States and elsewhere, really, you know, they're much, they have been much more aggressive in general across the globe and um, much quicker than what we saw in 2008. And I think that has played a big role in, by, by solidifying the, the economy, it's helped solidify the financial system. And then of course, once again, in, in here, a case of a virtuous circle, the, the more stable financial system has then in turn helped solidify um, economic stability. And so, yeah, I do think that we learned some things in 2008. Now, how long we learned them <laughs> and, and whether we continue to adjust because we know financial systems evolve over time and, you know, new financial products and, and new potential disasters are evolving all of the time. But, you know, at least for this, at least to this point, I, I do think that, that our, our systems are much better, we're, we're much better poised to withstand this crisis and, and they've, they've done a pretty good job so far. Yeah, as, uh, as we have learned uh, that the post uh, 2008 there has been a policy changes. So where do you see US economy going from here uh, under the Biden's administration? We have heard there will be high taxations and maybe uh, less inequality uh, in future. Well, um, you know, always asking an economist for predictions of the future is a little dangerous. <laughs> we're not, we're not particularly great forecasters, and particularly when it comes to 
thinking about the effects of policy because there's a lot of politics that that have to go um, they have to go on before we enact these policies, let alone understand how they're going to impact the U.S. economy. There does seem to be a, a fundamental change taking place, at least in, in, among the American populace, about what the role of government should be going forward. Um, if the 80s were the era, era of big government being over, maybe this is the era where big government is back. And I think you know people are looking for the social safety net that government can provide. And I think increasingly seeing that we're all in this together. The pandemic has illustrated in many ways in which all of us are in this together. And that's not just in terms of being sick, but that's also in terms of, of economic outcomes, right? That we are reliant on government for many, many goods, public goods, public investment. And, um, you know, these are things that individuals can't just provide themselves. We're relying on each other for ideas and the new technologies that hopefully will spur economic growth in the future, right? Indivi it's not individuals that come up with new technologies, it's networks. And so, you know, I, I, I guess I am somewhat optimistic that people are seeing the ways in which we're interconnected a little bit more and maybe seeing the, the ways that governments can help facilitate these networks and facilitate the public investments that need to be made that can, that can foster future growth. Um, but, you know, that, that might also be just optimistic thinking on my part. Uh, hopefully it, it yeah, becomes true. And as we are all, all optimistic about it, in terms of global inequality, we have seen that uh, South Asia, Africa, they have uh, remained continuously poor. In African regions, we have seen that people, um, thousands of people die of hunger, daily die of hunger. Many NGOs, uh, UN, they work there uh, to feed those people, but people are still dying there. So do the charities and these sort of systems uh, work there or is there a more systematic change is needed there? Or is it because the politics of African region, they, they are still poor of what needs to be done? Yeah, so um, yeah, that's, that's a really big question. Um, so we do know that people can be raised out of poverty, right? We have seen this. Um, you know, if we went back to 1980, we would see, you know, almost 30% of the global population was living in extreme poverty. Today, that's less than 10%. But unfortunately, most of that 10% lives in sub-Saharan Africa. So while we've seen big increases, many people that have risen out of extreme poverty in China and in India, um, we have not seen that same rise taking place in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, why and, and why hasn't aid been more successful? Well, I think you've hit on one of the factors that politics have played a role, right? Many of the countries in Africa are dysfunction, dysfunctional politically and economically. And so while aid might be well-intentioned, in practice, it's often simply just fostered corruption or if not fostering corruption, it's, it's been wasted, right? In the sense that there have been billions spent on new roads and bridges in, in some parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, but not one penny on maintenance. 
And so, you know, we see this time and time again, is that, well, there's a lot of well-meaning intentions in terms of um, financial um, aid. Oftentimes, this, this aid has not come to fruition. And it's an interesting contrast between Sub-Saharan Africa and East Asia, who has not on a per capita, per capita basis received nearly as much aid as Sub-Saharan Africa. And yet we see big improvements in East Asia, right? We see big improvements in India and China, and yet we haven't seen the, the same improvements in Africa. Now, having said all that, um, the last 15 to 20 years in Sub-Saharan Africa have, has been one of the longer, more sustained periods of economic growth that the region has seen. And so, you know, there was reason to be optimistic about Sub-Saharan Africa, but, you know, we just don't know what, what impact this COVID is gonna have, right? I mean, um, in, in general, um, just as, as we could have said until recently for India, the impacts of COVID were not as bad as what we expected. But we know the last month that COVID has started to rampage India. And I think there's real worries that a similar kind of delayed impact on Sub-Saharan Africa could be coming. And so we, we just don't know, right? We just don't know. Um, you know, I will say to, to return to this question of, of foreign aid, there is one area where foreign aid has proven to be very, very successful, and that is in public health, right? Even though, for instance, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we have not seen dramatic reductions in, in number of people living in extreme poverty, we have seen dramatic reductions in many measures of public health, such as infant mortality. And so, Public health has been the one area where foreign aid has done some real good, right? In terms of, you know, for instance, making sure that more people have access to IVs when they, when they get diarrhea, to make sure that um, we have the best medical practices for newborn infants so that we can reduce infant mortality. So that kind of foreign aid has been very successful. And so my hope is that maybe, maybe in terms of combating COVID, that there's more that countries can do in terms of foreign aid, whether it's, you know, providing the vaccine, most obviously. But I think where a lot of these sub-Saharan need the va vaccine, but in, in public health systems, right? Ways that they can actually deliver this vaccine in an effective way and get a big chunk of the population back. You know, I, I think this is one of the areas where, where foreign aid can really be effective. And I, and I hope that the countries that have the means to do so will, will turn quickly towards helping, uh, helping these, these poor countries. Yeah, uh, great analysis on African region. Uh, fantastically, you have exp uh, told us that how, what is the reason and uh, what could be. In terms of vaccines, where do you see, if we have also seen the inequality in terms of vaccines, richer countries invest, invested in the vaccines that poorer have not got, uh, got the vaccines and some are struggling to get uh, patents for those vaccines. So do, what do you see about the vaccine inequality? Well, you're right. I mean, there is undoubtedly a global inequality component of this, right? And it's it's in part because richer countries can afford more vaccine, but I think in large part it's been because richer countries have the technology and the um, production facilities to really make a lot of vaccine. 
And so the countries that have been making vaccines to this, to this extent in the crisis have largely been looking out for themselves first. And first among this is the United States, right? I mean, um, the US, when you look at their growing stockpiles of the vaccine, you, it, it does look a little bit like hoarding. And so I'm hopeful that as we move to this next stage of the vaccine, that the US will begin to release a lot of its growing production and, and inventories of vaccine to areas of the world that need it most. I know the US has pledged, um, I can't remember the exact number now, um, maybe 100 million doses to India to help them combat, combat their breakout. And I hope that the US and other, other countries can do more of that in the future. Um, but you're right, th this, is, this is an area where, where inequality um, has had some pretty vicious, vicious impact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hopefully, we are vaccine inequality uh, and soon. As we move uh, towards our last question, uh, it's uh, quite a tricky question, but uh, as we know, these, these cyber questions don't have a single answer, but what do you see as a solution? What type of economic uh, type uh, model is a solution to global inequality and national inequality we see in the world? Is it state capitalism model like of China or Nordic economic model like of Sweden, Denmark, or is should be our uh, model as described by economists like Thomas Piketty, like a global taxation system. So what types of measures we need to take to tackle the global inequality? Well, I, you're right, that's a hard question. <laughs> that's a big question though, and an important question. Um, when I think about global inequality, I still am a believer in, in fundamentally capitalist systems, but that doesn't mean that markets have to determine everything. And that doesn't have to mean that markets are the only thing that matters in who gets what. So I would like us, you know, first off as a as society, a global society, to recognize that we are all interrelated that when it comes to income, it's not just an individual thing, it's a communal thing. We are all relying upon each other for our own productivity and for our own ability to generate income. The more that we see ourselves not as individuals, but as parts of networks, I think that we'll adopt better policies. Um, you know, we are so reliant on each other for ideas and, and what that means is that as a result, when we don't help each other out, we're much, like, much more likely individually to be stuck in poverty traps. And when we can help each other out, we're much more likely to be part of virtuous circles. And so I think a lot of our policy has to begin to think about that, right? Um, obviously, improving education and educational access for everybody is a very important part. Of, of dealing with inequality, because we know that inequality, a, a big driving factor in inequality right now is the premium paid to education. The more that we can, we can get more people educated and, and taking advantage of that education and premium, um, the better off that we will be as a society. But just saying improve education, I mean, it is not enough. First off, we have to think about some of the more fundamental reasons why some kids don't have an education. And this has to do with investments in children right from the get-go in terms of health, in terms of 
public welfare. Um, we need to make sure that we are giving parents the support so that they can make the, the kind of early investments in children that make sure that they're ready for school when they begin. We need to make sure that people have a, you know, have the opportunities to, if they're, even if they're born poor, to become rich over time. And by that means, by that I mean more of a true, um, a, a true society of opportunity, right? One that doesn't just exclude people because of the color of their skin or their gender. And so, listen, these are not easy questions to solve, but I, I would like, as kind of a broad principle, um, for policy to more reflect the ways that we are interconnected and not just to emphasize this idea that somehow we're all just part of a capitalist market-based economy in which we all have to take care of ourselves because we just simply know that's not the case. It wasn't the case before COVID and it is certainly not the case after COVID. Okay, great, uh, great answer to this tough, tough question. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Todd, for giving you all important time. Uh, it means a lot uh, to have you as a guest and it was a pleasure having you. Thank you, Wasil, it was really nice to talk with you. Okay, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thank you.